everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I'm Michael Davis. We are coming to you today from sunny Southern California. It's a pleasure to be out here and really a pleasure to have our featured artist for this month, the great Gordon Goodwin with us. Gordon, uh, to describe him as multi-talented would be a gross understatement. Uh, he is a Grammy Award winner. He is a three-time Emmy Award winner. Uh, he's the leader of the critically acclaimed and wildly popular Big Fat Band, uh, of which they've recorded nine CDs with that ensemble. He has a myriad of cinematic scoring and orchestration credits, including The Incredibles, uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Con Air, Armageddon, Get Smart, Enemy of the State, Star Trek Nemesis, National Treasure. He has worked with a myriad of artists. Including... He forgot snakes on a plane. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> Next thing. <laughs> he forgot Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. <laughs> Oh, I almost put that one in. I should have. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, okay. Anyway, well, now we got Continue, it. sorry. Okay. And he has worked with a myriad of, of solo artists, including Ray Charles, Christina Aguilera, Johnny Mathis, John Williams, Natalie Cole, David Foster, Sarah Vaughn, Mel Torme, and the great Quincy Jones. He has been a guest conductor with the London Symphony Orchestra, as well as the symphonies of Seattle, Atlanta, Dallas, and Toronto. Gordon, thank you so much for taking time to thank come you. visit us today. Thanks and, for having uh, me. Looking forward to uh, hearing about your incredible career. It's uh, you know what's it's really mind blowing to to sit there and kind of listen to that. I go, did I do all that stuff? Really? <laughs> it just seems like I'm just getting started. Seriously. Well, you know, and, and that's maybe that's how it works. You know, you just keep banging away and doing what you're doing, and all of a sudden. There's a body of work. <laughs> well, I think that's part and parcel with why you're uh, continuing to do such great work is that your mind is in that space, you know, of like, uh, you know, let's keep forging ahead. You know, uh, I was talking to my, my young son uh, who's going to school as a freshman in college, and, and he we're kind of talking about maybe he hit that wall that you do when you're just starting college. Like, oh, man, it's so much work, and every teacher just is on you to, you know, to get it, I, they don't care about your recital or your other assignments, or you right. just have to get it done. And so you have to make that adjustment. And um, and and I, we were talking the other night about finding a way to be content with where you are and, and just the process of it, not to look at, I want to do this, this, and this, so then I'll win a Grammy right. As, right. As, a, as like a goal. You know, and, and that's, I mean, listen, it took me decades to get to that point where I was just comfortable with who I was at that time. Because when I listen to the early, some of the earlier work now, I mean, I, it doesn't, I don't know who did that stuff. <laughs> you know, I don't know who wrote those charts. I can't stand by those decisions anymore. Yet I'm not going to go back and rewrite them, you know, right, right. I'll let them, that guy wrote those charts, you know? And, uh, and so I've learned to become, I guess, comfortable with that. The fact it's, you know, we're all on the ladder at some point, we're all working on and trying to get better, and and uh, we there's no point in comparing us our, ourselves to anybody else. Yeah, yeah. You know? that's a good, great point. It's all about the journey. I totally agree. Yeah. Speaking of the journey, you grew up in Kansas, and you wrote your first big band chart. I learned this in doing a little research when you were in seventh grade. So you were obviously uh, destined to uh, to go on to do things with the big band. Tell us a little bit about I, that. I was only in Kansas for two years. Oh, okay. okay. Year one and year two. And then okay. my <laughs> then my parents moved out of Kansas to California, which was a Kind of a big deal back then because most of the times families kind of stayed together, right. you know, grew up in the same town, retired there. But but my dad was a teacher and he heard there was a bunch of teaching gigs in California. So he, he pulled my mom. My mom grew up in a farm you mm -hmm. know, in Kansas, pulled her off the farm. They moved to California and, and uh, I'm grateful they did. I was able yeah. to, when I got interested in music, I found myself in a mecca of talent yeah. and inspiration. So um uh, the um, yeah, so the move from Kansas, I I don't remember it, but I I can remember uh, being forced to take piano lessons as a kindergarten kid. Didn't like it, <laughs> hated it. Matter of fact, I was, but I was a kid that just said, okay, I did what my pa parents told me to do. You know, I kind of just just endured it. And I but I had a piano teacher named Janet Hodges, and Janet uh, Mrs. Hodges knew that I hated playing my scales, and who who doesn't, you know. <laughs> But she said, she was really cra crafty. She goes, if you play your scales, I'll let you write a song next week. And I said, well, what, I don't, what does that even mean? Write a song, I didn't, you know. And so and I said, okay. And so, so what she did, she gave me a, like a, a left hand part. And she goes, now you put the, fill the right hand in. It was about eight bars, no, no longer than that. So I just kind of filled in parallel thirds, you know. <laughs> But it was a, she goes, okay, good enough. And he goes, now next week, I want you to write your own song. 
and you should write a waltz. And I, I didn't know what a waltz was. She goes, it goes like, dun, 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 three, four time, you know. So I went home and I wrote, you know, a crappy little waltz. <laughs> and then next week she had me do a polka and then a march. And so she planted the idea pretty early that I could maybe create my own music as opposed to just. Wow, that's what a great uh, gift. Oh, my, it was an incredible yeah. gift. Um, but I didn't do a whole lot with that until um, seventh grade where my band director was a guy who influenced my life a great deal. His name is Robin Snyder. And he sat me down in the middle school band room and said, look, Curb Alpert is in Tijuana Brass. They're great because I was really into them. He goes, right. you need to listen to this. And he gave me a Count Basie record. And he said, this is going to change your life. And it did. He, and he played me um, the Queen Bee. Right? And everyone loves that San Francisco chart. And, and, and that's, that's like the last chart on side two, I think, of the record. You know, he just, I don't know why I picked that one, but I, I heard that music and it, I had an epiphany. As a little seventh grade kid, like, I think I want to do this. I want to write this or play this or something. I, and, and, the, and the fact that I've been able to make, become friends with Sammy and I've been able to tell him again and again <laughs> how he changed my life and how grateful I, I am for that. To the point where he's tired of hearing it, you know. <laughs> that is the most amazing thing. Because how yeah. many of us are able to tell our heroes what they mean to us? That is so And, and cool. I got that opportunity. So. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, you, you continued uh, your education at Cal State Northridge here in, in the L.A. area, which has always been a great program. And uh, how was that experience for you? Back then it was uh, Joel Leach was, I believe, yeah. running the program. And uh, it was certainly one of the powerhouse programs uh, back at that time. Still a really fine program. But how was that for you? Your uh, experience there? I had, a, I, I had to make an adjustment because when I went into college, as a high school uh, saxophone player, you know, I had enough raw ability I could just kind of get by without ever really applying myself and learning how to play the instrument. Mm. I really, and I was the least of my band director's problems. I was writing charts and conducting the band and doing, and I had all kinds of youthful energy and, <laughs> you know, passion and stuff. But I had the worst sound. I had, I, I, my equipment was bad. I had a good saxophone. but So right before I got into college, Phil Woods moved to L.A. And my friend John Yoakum, who's an in-demand session player here in town today, he says, he goes, Phil's in town. And I called him and I got a lesson and it was incredible. I said, wow. So he gave me Phil's number. So I called him up. I'm in my parents' you know, hallway in, in our <laughs> home I grew up in. I'm in Phil Woods' answers. And I said, Mr. Woods, I really to come in. You know, so we set an appointment and I drove out to where he was staying. And I took this lesson with him. And it was the most humiliating experience of my life. <laughs> he hated me. He, 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 he said, how dare you come to me sounding like this? That's what he said. And I'm, I, I had just made the first man at Northridge as a you know freshman. I just played at Monterey Jazz Festival and like a high school all-star thing, whatever, feeling like, okay, this might be working for me. And then Phil Woods tells me <laughs> that I suck. And so, and so what he what he had he had me do, he was living with a saxophone player named Vic Morosco, who lives back east, east now. And Vic was a session player, and he goes, Vic's gonna teach you. I'm out. So he leaves, and Vic goes, okay, kid, here you go. And he said, he goes, first of all, he goes, look, you're, you're biting your lip like this. He goes, your reed can't vibrate. He goes, roll that lip out. Roll that lower. Okay, now put the mouthpiece here. He goes, now play a low B flat. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> honk. And I'm trying to get my new embouchure to work, you know, and honk. I sound like a, you know, fourth grader. <laughs> and so I can see, I can see Phil Woods in the kitchen. He's in the kitchen just looking at me going, <sighs> So, so Vic fixed me up, you know, I mean, he, he, he taught me more about air support and taught me how to get a better mouthpiece, a better ligature, all this stuff that, you know, you, you need to know that stuff. So my first few months at Northridge were, were me trying to adjust with between my old embouchure and my new one, because I had to go to the A band and play and I couldn't be honk. I had to kind of go back to this right, right. a little bit until I could finally make the transition. So, so, so for Northridge, um, the deal was back then, they didn't have a jazz major. Right, right. So they said, you will study classical saxophone. You'll study conducting, orchestration, counterpoint, music history, things I would never have chosen. I, I wanted to play alto sax in Buddy Rich's band. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of what I was wanted to do. And so 
here's the interesting thing. So, so my son Trevor went to Berkeley in Boston. Mm -hmm. And so we go there, and we take him there, and they're talking about the program, and they, they, they described it as a, like a smorgasbord for kids to come in and kind of tailor pick the things that they're interested in and, you know, and kind of, you know, tailor make their schedule for what their skill set is and what their goals are, which is great. But if that would have been the case for me, I would not be writing orchestra music mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. The big fat band would not be a stylistically diverse if it existed at all. I couldn't conduct. I mean, there's so many things that I wouldn't be doing had someone just said, sit down, this is what you're going to do. So, I, I have mixed feelings about kids just being able to choose what they want. Because let's face it, we don't know who we are right. as, as young people. I barely knew who I am now, you know? <laughs> so, so, so the Cal State Northridge, I got a great education. I got an affordable education. I couldn't buy my kids books now for what it costs to go right. to school. The Northridge right. was like 500 bucks a, a semester or something. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's a phenomenal deal. Yeah. Well, that's cool. It's a great training ground. And uh, like you said, I know, I know sometimes the unstructured thing can be, uh, it can be, uh, you know, not necessarily the best thing, you know. But Yeah, it, I guess it, it's, certainly it's different for every, every kid. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So once you get out of Northridge, what was, uh, what was your first memories uh, as being a professional musician here in, in L.A.? I, I, uh, when I was in Northridge, I started to play uh, in club bands. I played with a bunch of old guys playing swing music and stuff and, and you know, I made a little money doing weddings and bar bits. Then I played in a, a kind of a club band playing like Stevie Wonder songs and Earth, Wind & Fire, which really was my education in pop music. Because in Northridge, we were studying jazz and I learned about classical music and got way into Stravinsky and Prokofiev and, and Debussy and composers like that. Um, but then at nighttime, I'm playing, you know, you know Earth, Wind & Fire. Mm -hmm. And, and it was really, and I, I have to say, man, before that, I was a pretty big jazz snob. I hated pop music of all. It's, I like Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you know. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was it for me and maybe Chicago. But uh, I, I didn't like the Doors. I didn't like the Beatles. I, didn't, I just didn't relate to that stuff. Yeah. And so I think playing in that band at that club kind of opened up my uh, palate to letting that music in for its own charms, even if it isn't as sophisticated Harmonically, you know, rhythmically, is Stravinsky. You know, that right. are, it has it has uh, qualities that are that are still, uh, you know, worthy of my attention. So, so I, I did that uh, after I got out of college. Still, I still played weddings and a lot. A lot of I used to play weddings with people like Dan Higgins. You know, <laughs> and and but it was poisonous to me because I started to become a real dark guy. Hmm. I'm sitting there playing these weddings, and you know, what we used to do man. We used to we used to kill the wedding ceremony or not the ceremony, the reception. Cause if they wanted a fast song, we play something really slow, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we, we could kill them. And it was like, this is so terrible. This is like their most important day of their lives. We just wanted to get out because I'm playing music that I don't really like and people aren't really listening. And it, was, it just felt, it felt wrong to me. And so finally I, Dan Higgins said something to me back then and he said, he goes, you know, you're not going to do the gigs you want to do until you stop doing the gigs you don't want to do. Wow, yeah. And I said, oh, my God. So I, 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 start, I started turning down those, those casuals, which was hard because I, I, you know, I needed the money like anyone else. Sure. Uh, but around that time, a friend of mine was working at Disneyland. And he goes, hey, they need a piano player. Why don't you come down and audition? So I went down and auditioned and got the gig and started a relationship with that company that continues mm -hmm. to this day. Yeah. That's where I really learned to be a professional musician was at Disneyland, playing in shows and, you know, um, playing well, whether I felt like it or not, being a professional, showing up on time, you know, smiling my face and, and do, do the job. Yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah. What do you mean the bride didn't want inner urge as her first dance? She didn't really respond. Love what? Supreme was like, you know, she, she couldn't she couldn't go with it. I get, you know, it just takes me back to my, uh, I was definitely a jazz head when I was growing up and, and. I was so into the big bands, but I remember I was into Buddy Rich's band and got to and, and spend two years with him after I got out of school. But anyway, I thought Norwegian Wood was a Buddy Rich tune. That's how sheltered yeah, that's I was. Right. It's like, woo, right? I missed that one. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought the beat goes on was a Buddy Rich tune. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Oh. Well, let's, let's fast forward a little bit to your getting into the craft of, of writing and scoring for television and for, and for film scores. Um, how did you get into that, and, and how do you see the scene 
you know, have you the scene has it has how has it evolved uh, in, in terms of your career over the years or devolved? Devolved, case, yes. maybe. <laughs> yeah. You never know. You never know the connections you're going to make at any given time that'll lead to you know opening the next door for you. So, and it was uh, a guy I met at Disneyland who was a he was like a kid of the kingdom, like a singer dancer guy named Dan Funk, and he became a television producer after he kind of moved on from there. So he called me and I. And he had a company, uh, and it produced a lot of uh, TV specials. And um, we never really did a series with him, but we did we did a lot of work for a while. His company produced uh, Miss USA and Miss Universe before Trump did. <laughs> it was pre-Trump, and and so we would do all those all those pageants every year uh, for years and years. And and so uh, that was kind of the first thing. And then um, uh, I guess this maybe in the '90s is when I first started to score for animation. And I got I got uh, John Debney hand me down because he didn't want to do this ABC animation show and referred it to me, so I did a, a, a series for them. It lasted two years, called the Wild West Cowboys of Moo Mesa. It was pretty pretty bad show, but I got to write cowboy music, Elmer Bernstein kind of stuff. It was mm-hmm. pretty fun. We had a limited budget, but from there I got a job at Warner Brothers working on uh, Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs and some of those shows. And I was working with a stable of incredible composers, uh, led by Richard Stone, who was uh, a complete genius at writing music in the style of Carl Stalling. Mm. And, um, you know, that was a golden era. It was, we would probably do, I don't know, two sessions a week. The musicians, we were working all the time. It was a 40-piece orchestra, not a synthesizer to be seen. And that was, it was, they were all um, executive produced by Steven Spielberg. And that was his edict. No synths. No library music. Every episode scored to picture, you know, and uh, so it led to 10 years of work wow. for the composers and for the musicians, you know, in L.A. It was really, and I, I learned so much, um, you know, from that experience. Um, my, my, my first uh, cue was another disaster because I was, I thought, I got this. I know how to do this. So I... I've been watching Bugs Bunny cartoons since I was a kid, you know, so I got at the ep- it was a is a Sylvester and Tweety episode and Rich gave me two two cues to do. So I'm on the podium and I'm conducting and I was about four bars in where I realized, "Oh my god, I missed the target." It, and we're we're on the Warner Brothers scoring stage, the same stage they recorded all those classic Carl Stalling scores, same piano, same everything, and it's obvious I I it was my music was not right. It was close. It was about 60% there. So we, we finish the cue, and I go into the booth, and Rich gets out a red Sharpie. He goes, okay, let's take a look. He goes to my score. He goes, mm, nope. That's okay, but never a flute. Always clarinet. No, 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 no. This is okay, but maybe down an octave. And he's marking my score up, you know. And all the musicians are in the booth kind of checking it out, and I'm, I'm feeling all red and hot, you know. <laughs> but it was exhilarating, too. Yeah. Because I, I said, oh, my God, I have a kind of a new mentor. And so he goes, take this home and fix it. Come back next week. So I came back next week. He goes, okay, that's better. He goes, in the week after that, he gave me three cues. Week after that, he gave me five cues. You know, so then I'm little by little, I'm starting to work my way in. And then the week after that, he gave me a cue to do for a show called Freakazoid, which is a great show, a little ahead of its time over there. And I couldn't go to the session because I had some other work to do. So he called me. At home after that, and I and I I said, "Hey, Rich," and I was, "Oh my God, he's going to tell me, you know, your cue sucked, man, you know." And he goes, "Best cue ever." I go, "What?" He goes, "Best cue we've ever had." Come on, I, I still thought he was, you know, pulling my chain, and uh, you know, he goes, "No, great." So it took about maybe uh, two months, you know, for me to really learn the language of that and become kind of really comfortable that okay, I can do this. It was it was great. Well, wow, what, what a cool opportunity. I mean, obviously you have the talent to back it up, but, but to have that, to just you know, thrust yourself into and, uh, and get to try that stuff all and, and, and learn from somebody like Rich. That's, Which that's is something thing. that we used to have in this town. They used to have staff composers and people could go to Universal or wherever and start as a copyist or a proofreader and then sit next to somebody like Dave Grusin and he could show you some stuff and then, okay, I'll let you orchestrate this cue. Okay, now, you know, finish composing this. And then you get, you know, and you work your way through. Mm-hmm. It's in a kind of an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. which doesn't really exist, at least in a formal way anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
You know, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I think, of course, I know about your charts for years way before the big fat band. But uh, uh, I think I knew about you through being the uh, musical director for Johnny Mathis. And, and you have done a lot of that over the years, in addition to all your other things. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to hear you talk about the, the conducting experience you got at Northridge and the yeah. kind of the beginning stages of that. Could you talk a little bit about what that's like being a musical director? Maybe, maybe your experience with Johnny and, and just uh, how, how, you, how you approach that side of your career. Well, okay. Uh, I started with Mathis as a pianist. And that, winning that gig led me to correct another problem. So I had a problem with my embouchure on saxophone. Mm -hmm. I also had a problem with my piano playing because... I would get tension right here in my wrist, pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And I was, used to have to like get a glass of ice on the gig and kind of ice it down when I was, as I was playing. And um, so uh, my wife, Lisa, was taking piano lessons from a guy named Mark Richmond, who, who was a professor of piano at UCLA, classical guy. Mm -hmm. And so I, was, I would go to the lessons and kind of hang out and talk to him once in a while. And I said, hey, man, would you mind, can I take a few lessons? And I said, I'm having some pain. And he says, You're, it's too late. I go, too late. He goes, yeah. He goes, you're 30. You know, he goes, your cartilage is done. He goes, I can't, I can't help you. And I said, well, I just got this gig with Mathis. And one of the things we had to do was a big West Side Story piano and vocal kind of a concert style thing. I said, I, I don't know if I can get through it. He goes, he goes, all right. He goes, let me give you a test. If you pass this test, you can take lessons. So he goes, turn around. He goes, and he sat at the piano. He goes, what's this note? I go, oh, it's a D. What's this note? G sharp. And so he gave me like an ear training test. He goes, okay, what's this chord? And he would play these random chords. And I, my ears are good enough to pick them out. He goes, all right, I'll teach you. <laughs> so he taught me that I was not breathing as I was playing piano, which I never, I mean, as a wind player, you think I'd know how to breathe, you know, but I wasn't. I was holding my breath as I played the piano. And I also had, uh, you know, the angle of my hands was wrong. The, the position of my seat was wrong. A lot of details that I never knew. He taught me things like if I'm playing a phrase, I can have my hand kind of go in the curvature of the, of the phrase, breathe with the music. And um, he taught me, to, you know, how to relax when I'm playing. And I haven't had any pain since mm. then, which is a good thing because I got on that Mathis gig. I had to play this West Side Story, you know, <laughs> stuff. And um, I owe a lot to Mark for, you know, for fixing that problem. So I was, I was Mathis's piano player for a couple years. Then I left. Actually, I got fired from the gig right when I was about to leave. Because uh, Lisa was pregnant with our second kid. So I wanted to be there for that, you know. But I, I kept the relationship open and cordial. Then they called back a year or two later and said, would you like to come conduct? So I did another couple of years conducting. And Johnny Mathis is, I didn't really know about the dude. I, I thought he's a ballad singer, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that he was personal friends with Miles Davis. Right. And Oscar Peterson. <laughs> and that he knew all those guys. And that he... That his musicality was like his his show had these great beautiful arrangements by the best arrangers in the in the planet. You know, I mean, everybody: Nelson Riddle, Don Costa, Gordon Jenkins. They all wrote for him. You know, and uh, incredible library. I got to study those scores and, and check wow, them out. So, cool. um, and and the thing about Mathis that I that I, I was a kind of an extension of what I learned at Disneyland because I remember asking him early on. I said, "How do you sing Misty every night? You sing it every night." He goes, well, it's a beautiful song. I go, yeah, come on. <laughs> Every night. I know it's a good song, but how do you, don't you get, he goes, look, my fans want me to sing that song. He goes, I, I want to give my fans what they want. And I remember thinking, oh, it's kind of a BS answer right, at the right. time. <laughs> and then some years later, I put this band together and we have a couple of songs that are not to the level of Misty, but for us, they're hits. And the kids that come see us, they want to hear the well, jazz hey, police. Sure. Yeah. And when we play at every gig, and the, the the kids go nuts, and we want to play that for them. Sure. So yeah. I, I understand what he what his, he was talking about the gift that it is to be able to be on stage, which I think may, too many jazz musicians forget. Mm -hmm. Maybe we try to emulate Miles Davis turning his back on the audience, <laughs> or maybe we're so mindful of how much work we put in to learn how to do it that we think, hey, you should come to me. You know, I, I work my ass off to do mm -hmm. this. When, in fact, um, I, think, I think we're paying the price for that in our little 1% market share that we have, or it's even less than that probably now, you know, that we have to be able to show our audience why this music is, is worthy and, and relevant. So I, can, I got that from Mathis. Hmm. Every night he came out there and, and sang as if he completely meant it. He probably did, mm -hmm. you know. So um, 
that was that was really uh, an epiphany for me as well to go out there and to be able to see that in action every night. It was it was uh, really informed my thinking on that on that topic. Yeah, very cool. Well, let's jump ahead to the big fat bank because I know I, I have a ton of questions I want to ask you about it, and I know our, our viewers uh, as well. Um, you started the band in two thousand, mm-hmm. I, I believe. Um, you know, you it's it's such a successful band, and I've heard the band so many times, and a fan myself. When you started the band, what were you, what were you thinking about? Did you have a blueprint for what it was going to become, and uh, did you have a plan, or was it? Uh, how well, were you looking at it at that point? At that point, I was working at Warner Brothers, doing the doing those cartoons, and you know, i i had a I had a realization about that. That is this me? Is this me? Is this I'm just going to go from gig to gig and emulate Carl Stalling on this gig and then go to a Disney gig and emulate one of their guys and then go to another gig. Am I just going to be a chameleon? Mm -hmm. An honorable thing to do. Plenty of composers do it and players do it. That's that's great. Is this my legacy? You know, and and you start there's a point you wake up and you go, you know, maybe there's more road uh, behind me than ahead of me. (laughs) So. And I had stopped writing big band music for maybe five, six years. Just hadn't done it. Mm. And um, so I, I remember deciding I'm going to see what it feels like again. So I, I came home. I would, I would work long days by the Animaniacs. We start at maybe nine in the morning because that music is complicated to write. So if I could get two to three minutes a day, that's a good day. So I would work from nine in the morning until maybe nine at night, maybe ten. And then I said, let me see if I can write some more big band music. So I would work for a couple hours at night. And I, I remember the first song I wrote was um, uh, Sing Sang Sung. And then I wrote this, this Latin tune called Shake Your Bones. And then, you know, so I kind of started to accumulate charts and then started to talk to some friends of mine, Wayne, you know, and uh, I, I talked to Jerry Hay about it. Um, and Jerry said, you know, if you want to do a big band record, we'd love to help. Uh, you should call this guy Tommy Vacari, who's this engineer that we use who's Quincy's engineer. And so, so I said, well, maybe I should just, you know, plant my flag here, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to run a band. I just wanted to record it like a steely Dan thing. No touring, you know, <laughs> just record the music. So, um, I just call all the, all my friends, you know, that, that I work with in town. And, um, and we went in and recorded about half the record, like five songs. And then I started to, okay, now what, how do I, how do you get a record deal? I had no idea. So I asked Johnny Mathis, what, what should I do with this? So Johnny Mathis says, well, he goes, I'm going to give it to Phil Ramone. So he gives it to Phil Ramone, who loves it, and gives it to the guys at Concord Records. So I get a call from a guy named Hal Gaba, who, who has passed away since. But he called, he goes, man, this, what is this stuff? Who are you? This is great. <laughs> he goes, we can't sign you now, but great job. So, but then I, but then... Uh, I ended up meeting through a, a guy I knew at Dolby, knew some guys that were doing some surround sound things. It was a company called 5.1 Entertainment, and these guys were just naive enough to sign us, you know, <laughs> to think, oh, yeah, let's throw some money at this. But pretty much I paid for the whole thing, mm-hmm. the, f- the first record. So we, we did the other five tunes, released the first record, and then started getting a call, well, why don't you do a gig? So we do a gig here, a gig there. And before I know it, we're remembering what it's like to be on stage and playing for an audience where you get that back and forth, mm-hmm. which you don't get in a recording studio. No. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, and it'd been years since I'd been on stage playing music for people. So, um, it, it's, as I, as I talk about it now, uh, in many regards, it seems like it was forever ago. And it also feels like yesterday mm-hmm. you know, that we, that we started it. And when you said we have nine records out, I go, how did that even get, <laughs> how'd that happen? You know, I'll tell you one thing. If you look at somebody standing in front of a big band, probably they wrote a check. Right. right. They probably wrote a check for the privilege because there's not a lot of people. I mean, people are like Maria has found some solutions through Artist Share to maybe crowdsource, you know, and raise the money. Mm -hmm. That's an option, I think, for some people. I haven't done that. Mm -hmm. I've been lucky because I've been working, you know, in, in motion pictures and TV so I can make some money, feed the big band habit. It's a good way to put it. Pretty much. Have it. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. But now it's turned into a, you know, I mean, it's taken a, probably over half my time in a, in a typical day. Um, you know, or we've got an office that books the gigs and we got a manager and we, you know, an office assistant. And, you know, it's, um, it's brought balance to my life. Yeah. You know, because this is one area where I can do what I write music that sounds good to me. 
when we were working on Animaniacs, one of the producers came in and he heard a bassoon. He goes, what's that? I said, well, it's a bassoon. What's it? What? That's not very cartoony, is it? And we're like, <laughs> what do you say? I mean, you want to say, you idiot. It's the most cartoony instrument out there. Yeah, right. You know, but of course you can't say that. You go, okay, yeah, no bassoon. And so we de-emphasized the bassoon for maybe a couple weeks. And then that same producer comes back in and he happens to walk in on a session right where there's a little bit of exposed bassoon. He goes, hey, what's that? And we're all kind of going, you know. And so somebody goes, well, that's a bassoon. He goes, that's really like a, that's a Carl Stalling kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. So you're, you're always dealing with that kind of stuff with people who don't really know about music but feel compelled to give their opinion about it. Right. But with a big fat band, it's kind of an oasis of sanity, at least to, to some degree, you know, where I, we can play the music the way we think it should be played. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the personnel in the band for a second and how you go about picking the band. I mean, you've alluded to picking your friends, but, you know, for those of you who haven't heard the band, it's uh, it's one of the finest ensembles ever. And Wayne Bergeron, Andy Martin, Eric Marienthal, Brian Scanlon, Bernie Dressel, Rick Shaw, all these incredible music. Basically, you can name the entire band. They're all great, great yeah. players. Um, how'd you go about just assembling that, uh, that roster of talent? This is an interesting topic for me because when, when we put the band together on the first record, you've got people like Jerry Hay and Gary Grant, Dan Higgins and Bill Rockenbach. These are people that are not going to go on the road. Mm -hmm. I mean, I try to pay the guys like 500 bucks a gig, 300 to 500. So I'm like, that's not bad. Yeah, for a big event. Not big compared event. to what, but what those guys can make to stay home and do a jingle and do this and, you know, it's not going to happen. And, and I knew that right away. And so, um, so we knew, I knew I had to kind of find a, a, a musician that saw value in maybe losing some money to play music they believe in. And um, there are a lot of guys in town that try to strike that balance, you know. It can be a difficult balance to strike sometimes. So, um a lot of times the people that are in the band are, are uh, I, I talk to Wayne. Who would you like to have there? Who do you think would be a good fit? Try somebody out. But, but and uh, everybody in the band, I think, has a worldview about music. I think maybe they have an optimism about it. And like I said earlier, a gratitude about mm -hmm. being able to be a link in the chain from Count Basie to Thad and Mel to Buddy Rich, you know, on, uh, to us and to the other bands that are out there, you know, trying to keep this music alive. Mm -hmm. I think that has value to them. I think when we play for an audience of middle school or high school kids and to see these kids, these kids aren't really listening to Kanye. They're listening to, you know, to mm -hmm. music of content. And that, and that's, I think, the, the real future for the music. We have to, you know, be able to generate an audience, you know, out of, out of that demographic. So I think that's, that's one thing that's worked. But I will say, here's another thing that's been... Um, regretful for me about about leading the band i i probably have maybe five four to five friendships i've lost because of this band and and how it works at least from my side of it is some will be playing in the band and then maybe they just for whatever reason can't do it anymore most of the time it's financially driven they have to stay home to make some money maybe they're getting called to do movies a lot of conflicts we have are due to musical theater because they can't sub out of the show in the first week or two, mm -hmm. right? And so if I have a gig and it pays 500 bucks, well, they can't turn the whole run of the show down. So if they miss too many times, it's not fair to the guys that are turning things down. So we kind of have a 50% rule. You got to be there 50% 50 of the time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we need to take a look at things. And so when somebody leaves the band, then here's my next thing. I try to call the guys in the band for my other projects that pay real money because I want to thank them for being committed to the band, which means if somebody leaves the band, don't call them anymore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a few of those guys have kind of said, well, what's the deal? Don't you want the best player? I go, well, of course, but it's not like I've got chopped liver here. I go, I, I have to be, show some loyalty to the guys who are there. Mm -hmm. And so um, other times there have been certain people that, you know, when, when you're peers and friends, you kind of come up together and all of a sudden I'm on the other side of the glass and I'm conducting and I'm telling them to do this and, and um, some people have a problem with that transition, I think. Um, I, there was even times like we'd be at uh, Warner Brothers and we'd finish for lunch break and everyone would kind of leave to go 
have lunch without me. And I go, hey, guys, what are you doing? Wait a minute, you know? They're my friends. And they, one of them said, well, it kind of, people perceive that we're sucking up to the conductor if we eat lunch with you. Well, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. But that's a political reality. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely. Here in town, you know, and, and, um, and uh, I, I regret that, you know, that that's a part of the equation. But I think, and I would say this to, to a kid, like I, I like a clinic, a high school band, and I like to say, okay, when the band director's gone, who's the leader? Who is it? You know? <laughs> and so some, some bands, the kid will do that, and, I, and some they won't. So I'll say, okay, everybody, I'm going to count to three, point to the leader of the band. One, <laughs> two, three. And everybody always points to the same guy, you know, or the same person. So, so I talked to them about the price you pay for putting yourself out there and, and saying, this is who I am. You know, and I think that's the thing that that uh, if you can get to the point where you know that some people will like you, some people won't, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if that's and, and when you get comfortable with that, then there's a big burden that comes off. Yeah, so. that's really well said because I think there's anytime you're putting yourself outside and trying to do something, you know, taking it up a notch, you, you're definitely going to pay a price for that, and and it's a, you know obviously for you it's a price well worth paying, but. Uh, but I think there's no question about that in any in any facet of life. I think you try to go outside the box. It's you know. Part I will say of it. I will say this about the members of the band, and and I try to convey this often to them because I'm so grateful to it, for me to be able to sit in a section, you know, with Eric Marienthal and Sal Lozano and Brian Scanlon and the great players. I wouldn't be in that section with those guys to play music with Wayne Bergeron or Ray Brinker or the people that. I mean, it's. It's incredible opportunity, and for them to play my music, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't find a better situation, you know. So I'm completely cognizant of that. Yeah. And um, and so um, sometimes when you make a change, it's painful, but it's always better. Mm-hmm. You ever notice that when your life changes, even if you didn't really choose it, it's always better. Yeah. So you know. So I, I've learned to kind of embrace it when it's when it's time. Yeah. Good stuff. If I can, I want to ask you about the business side of it. And you, and you did mention, you know, that you, somebody's writing a check if there's a big band that's playing. Yeah. Um, it seems like you've done a really good job uh, just in, in stuff that I see. I mean, I do a lot of guest artist things and stuff, and everybody's playing your charts, as I'm sure you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, wildly popular with colleges and high school bands. And uh, um, how do you approach that side of it? You know, you have, you have the books, you've got the charts, you've got, of course, obviously the CDs and the downloads, you've got some cool swag on the site. Mm-hmm. How, how does that all fit together for you? And do you feel like that, that helps drive the engine uh, as it were? Um, I think that uh, early on when I signed with a, with a 5.1 entertainment, I talked to them about trying to create a synergy with, because I, I said, here's a world that I am known in. I'm maybe not known in the record business, but in the educational world, you know, I studied charts out there, not to mm-hmm. the degree that they would become, but they were out there. So I said, I think we need to brand this together. So in other words, the record comes out and it says, if you like you know, to play Gordon's charts, go to alfred.com. And on every Alfred chart, it has to say, this according can be heard on Concord Records or Silver Line Records, whatever the label was at the time. And and to try to bring those people together. And we were able to do that, like in our play-along books. You know, the, uh, uh, the, our first label was a partner with Alfred in, in terms of putting that together. Um, and so the swag uh, is kind of a loss. It's kind of a money loser, mm-hmm. you know. But it's, look, I, it's, a, it's all about building the brand. And I, I even feel like a sh- little bit of a, you know, to say that term sounds a little bit, you know, Slippery or something, but that's really what it's about. I'm doing this radio show now. Just started it last week, and uh, here in Los Angeles is on 88.1 FM. It's like a huge listener base, maybe biggest in the country, and I'm getting paid, you know, just it's negligible to do it. And I said, can I afford to do this? Two hour show. How long will it take me each week to put it together? So I talked to a few people about it that are in, you know, Dave Cause, and he said, you know. It's not about getting paid to do the show. You're, you could always get paid more to do your other stuff. He goes, it's about build, building your brand, promoting things you believe in. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, that's kind of what the merchandise is, you know. And that's why we give away a lot of free stuff, you know. If, if a kid orders a T-shirt uh, online, I'll usually throw a poster in too or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I think that 
public, especially younger people, kind of expect that kind of attention. Mm -hmm. They expect that kind of access to people now. Uh, it can be formidable. I mean, you, I could be on social media all day tweeting and doing that stuff. And, I, you know, I, I, I got music to write, too. So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's definitely a, a balance you have to do. Yeah. But I've learned that I don't think marketing is unseemly. And there used to be a thinking in the jazz world that the music should speak for itself and you shouldn't have to market it. And I think that's wrong. I think that you, I think the presentation is a big part of it. Look, we did a, we did a Detroit jazz festival last year. It was really great. We did a, a concert with Eddie Daniels, not Cohen, uh, Ken Poplowski and uh, Paquito Four clarinets. We did this. Wow, with Benny cool. It was really cool. And we did a, our own set, too. And there was a reviewer from back there, and he just hated us. He thought we were this just most slick Hollywood crap, you know. And he wrote a scathing review in, in one of those papers there. And um, everything that I think is important, you know, to kind of make, make this music accessible and understandable, not just to jazz people, but to, you know, to everybody. Um, you know, this guy objected to. And, and I, I just, we have a different opinion about that. But I think if you look at Duke Ellington, there's a showman there. Absolutely. You know? Oh, no question. A lot yeah. of the great jazz masters knew how to get on stage and present what they do, you know? Miles Davis, he was a showman in the way he did it. He had a persona, right? But that's, we're not all that, mm -hmm. you know? We're all, and so uh, I think it's important. When we do our gigs, we don't have stage weights where I'm like, okay, here we go. You cool? Here we go. One. <laughs> I I hate that stuff. I it needs to be, uh, it needs to be a presentation. We want to have respect for our audience, so that we put it together like a show, which is why when I have subs in the band, it's a problem. Even if they're really good subs that can play the music, because I don't want people just up there playing the music, reading the music. I should right, say. Right. I want them playing the music. I want them interacting. I want them present. You know, and on our best days. We don't have our heads in the charts. We're all there playing music together and having fun doing it. And, and that's what really works when it comes to that. No doubt. And I, I, I got to say, I heard you guys, uh, I think the first time I heard the band live was at Elmhurst and the great festival that Doug yeah. Beach runs there. Yeah, and, uh, thing, right. and you guys were like rock stars. I mean, the, the crowd was going insane and the energy coming off you guys, you were putting it right back onto the crowd and it was, yeah. it was inspiring. And, and you, you. you just like you said, everybody was engaged in the music. There was no, you know, it was all, everybody was really connected yeah. to what was going on. And, and then the audience fed off it like incredibly. One of the things that I want to try to do is to try to find a way in our, in our shows so that we don't, it isn't all just, Wah! you know, mm -hmm. that we have some contour and we kind of come down and pull the audience down into some, some more nuance. And, and I'm looking for places. It's, it's hard. Because I've got Wayne Bergeron and he can pop out that double D, you know, and have everybody go nuts. <laughs> I have Eric Herenthal and he can, you know, play, you know, he's the most amazing technician of anybody in the band. It's, it's seducive to want to showcase those kind of things. But that's why right now Eric's playing a ballad is this piece I wrote for him called The Passage. It's a ballad and he shows that he knows how he knows his, uh, you know, Johnny Hodges too, mm -hmm. you know. So, um you know, it's it's definitely we're, we're better at that now than than we used to be. I'd say I look at some of our earlier tapes, and especially in terms of my ability to talk to the audience and explain things, and and uh, that's a, that's a muscle that's gotten better over the years. Mm -hmm. How do you you know you've contributed so much to the growth of the music and and big bands in general? When you and you're out a lot working with programs, how do you see the future of big bands? Not just a big fat band, but in general, how do you uh, how do you feel about where where the big band is the you know what they're going? They're incredible bands everywhere now. It, it, it's not just New York or L.A. anymore. In Chicago, I mean, in, in, you know, the airmen of note. There's not a better big man ever than those guys. You right, know? right. And and if you go you know, to Florida to the Midwest, you know, there's all kinds of people in Seattle uh, that are San Diego that are fighting this fight. Mm -hmm. I think it is kind of a fight because it's, it's a logistical challenge. It's an economic challenge. And um, I, I, I just think for anyone that gets up there, large ensemble or, or small ensemble and puts themselves out there, I, you have to give them respect for that. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually pretty optimistic about it. I think um, um, I, there was a time that I thought it would disappear within our lifetimes. Um, but I don't think that anymore. There's definitely some young, some young bands, uh, young people that are that got bit by the virus just like we did. You know, 
And if nothing else, I think we can kind of sustain what we have now. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you're ever going to hear a big band on the Grammys. Right. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's going to ever happen. Uh, I think the uh, corporate autocracy, you know, is keeping the music and our culture, you know, to a certain level of common denominator. And, and I don't know that we'll be able to sustain that. But there's enough people that still value you know, what I call music for content that we can play to that audience, you know, and do, do really well. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to the Elmhurst appearance, I saw you guys that if you have that kind of reaction from young people, that's very positive, you know, and that, that shows to me, that's saying, you know, there's, there's an audience for this music, you know, it's amazing. And, and uh, you know, so you played in Buddy's band and, you know, and I, I used to go see Buddy at Disneyland every summer. Mm -hmm. you know, I'd, I'd be there every night front row you know, mm -hmm. watching that and just completely inspired by, by, you know, by that band and what he did. And so to see that happening a little bit on the other side, you know, it, it's, it's really mind-blowing. It mm -hmm. really is. I, I don't take it for granted for a single minute. Um, <laughs> piano or saxophone, if you had to pick? <sighs> what a terrible question. <laughs> you got two kids. Which kids? Which kid? <laughs> which one lives? Which one dies? <laughs> Sophie's choice. Here you go. I've done a lot of uh, work on on that. I, I I probably have to pick the piano because it's it's probably more you know incorporated in my into my composing. Um, I play one saxophone solo a night on the on our gigs usually, mm. and so it depends on when that tune falls. I'm sitting there playing. I look at the tenor. It's sitting there in the reeds. I know the reeds drying up and getting to you know, and I'm going to have to pick it up and go. And it used to mess me up pretty bad. And I finally stopped making excuses. Because I, I said, look, Gordon, either shut up and just go play and adjust or don't play. You know, no one is interested in your anxiety about it. You know? <laughs> and then, so, you know, James Morrison from Australia. Sure, so we, we played with him in Australia, at, uh, in, in Japan at the Blue Note. And we did the first night. And then the second night, we're in the green room. I go, hey, and everyone's kind of warming up before the first set. I said, hey, do you want to, let me go, because his horns are on, where are your horns? He goes, oh, they're on stage. I go, want me to go get him? He goes, no, nah, I'll be all right. I, everyone else is like, <laughs> you know, and he just sit, he goes on stage, picks up his horn, sitting, you know, and just goes. He, he doesn't have a, uh, a limitation mentally or even physically, which is amazing as yeah, a brass player. as a brass player, he's a freak. He's yeah. a freak, yeah, yeah, you know, but it really uh, taught me something maybe about, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe we've, we're kind of constructing limits for ourselves to some, one degree or another that mm -hmm. maybe we could, we could bust through. So what do you see in the next 10, 20, 30 years for you S straight ahead with the, with the big fat band? Are you uh, well, specific you know, we, things you're looking at? We formed or? a record label last year and our last record, our Christmas record uh, came out on our own label called music of content. This year we're releasing, uh, there's a little fat band. It's basically Wayne, Bergeron, Andy Martin, Eric Marienthal, and um, Andrew Sinowick on guitar. The record has Bernie Dressel and Rick Shaw on the bass and Joey DeLeon on percussion. So it's kind of uh, Fat Man-esque, but with more stretching and you know a little more freedom. Nice. Oh, cool. So that's going to come out probably early summer. Uh-huh. Um, I'm writing a trumpet concerto for James Morrison, which is orchestral, probably maybe with rhythm section as well. I think we're going to be touring uh, Australia with that. Um, we, I have a, we, I wrote a couple of string quartets for a group in, in, in San Francisco called Gr Quartet San Francisco. And they're kind of jazzers, but they're really great uh, string players. And I'm, I'm going to do a record with them along with two classical artists, John Manassi on clarinet from New York. Sure. Yeah, and uh, John Nakamatsu, who's an incredible pianist from uh, the Bay Area. And so I'm, I don't think it's going to be just big band, mm -hmm. but I, it's where I live, mm -hmm. you know. It's it's definitely it's definitely where I where I go home to, and um, I will probably have to still be involved in commercial music enough to pay for this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. I say, the numbers still don't quite balance, <laughs> but I think it's important to do it. Yeah, I think it's really important to do it. I become really jealous of my time now. What am I spending my time doing? Do I really want to spend this time writing another arrangement of "Let It Go" for Disney? Well, yeah, I need the money. Let me write the arrangement and, you know, back to my own thing. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, life is about balance anyway, isn't it? Yeah, you know? that's for sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of your time, we, we sure appreciate you uh, taking time out of your busy schedule and coming over. This has been awesome. I've, I've loved Thank every you, second of it. Final question. If I know there's young people out there that are thinking, geez, I want to play in the big fat man someday. 
And uh, I, I think it's important to have lofty goals, and that would be a lofty goal. But what would you say to those those young folks out there that are uh, thinking along those lines? All right, ten thousand dollar initiation fee. <laughs> you have to wash Wayne's car once a week. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and it's it's a wider question than that too. It's it, like it, how, it how do you is. how do it you certainly you know, achieve the success that you've had in in, in this business? I think that um, uh, I think it's a matter of. Uh, Keeping moving, you know, uh, it could be that, you know, you could play in the fat band someday, you know, and we, we're getting younger all the time. It's, it's great, too. Mm -hmm. It's important to have young, young people be just like Buddy did, mm -hmm. you know. And um, it's interesting for me, as I'm playing with younger, younger musicians, to relate to them. I don't know how Buddy was with you guys, if, if he could hang with you or relate to you very well or not. Yeah, not so I didn't. Much. It didn't seem like you it, No, you did. no, it was pretty much... Us against him kind of vibe, you know. Yeah, and, and I, I'm I'm sorry to hear that because I'm trying to not make my life defined by my gender or my age or my politics or my melanin content or anything, you know, the totality of who I am. And so I've tried to relate to people that way. So the, you know, I played last week with some young guys at a club uh, uh, here in town, and uh, you know they're on their mid twenties, and we just were hanging and playing, and we didn't think about the fact that they could be my kids, you know. <laughs> and so I. I I, I think that's uh, I'm going to try to hang on to that for a little while longer, yeah. at least. And um, but I would say that uh, if you you keep trying to get better every day, and and um, and keep yourself open to what opportunities will be there, then you're going to find your level. You're going to find it. Maybe it's not with the fat man. You know, mm -hmm. we we don't have a lot of openings, but we do have them. And and I I see that each man has like a time period where it works and where it's, you know where it's going to happen and where it's relevant. And I kind of, I'm not beginning to predictions, but I, I kind of feel like there's, an, there's a shift coming for our band. I can't tell you why I think that, but it mm -hmm. feels that way to me. Mm -hmm. Not sure what it is, but maybe by saying that, if any of the fat band guys watch that, maybe they'll be a little bit on their toes. <laughs> Well, Gordon, hey, thank you so much. This thank, been you, awesome. thank you for doing this. It's and, really and, great. My, my, really appreciate totally it. my pleasure. And uh, hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.